Dick Heller forces another change to DC's gun laws, and an interview with legal expert John Monroe about the Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty verdict. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and buy an exclusive membership today if you want to support independent and informed firearms journalism, which is what we bring to you and the rest of the world. The only way that will keep going is if people buy memberships. But on top of helping support us, you will also get exclusive access to dozens of news reports and analysis pieces published by myself and Jake Fogelman, my contributing writer here, who's with me today. Uh, so you'll also get to experience this podcast a day early and potentially be on the podcast and one of our member segments. So there's a lot. There's a lot to enjoy. And if you buy the, the annual membership, You'll get uh, two months included in there for free. You get the cost of a year for uh, what would actually what would be 10 months, technically. So it's a, it's a great value. Go ahead and check it out. But first, we're going to start with uh, Jake. Tell us uh, just a little bit about some of the polling that we've written up recently and some of what you've covered on that front. Sure, yeah. Uh, so a few big polls came out in the last week or so. Um, Support for gun control amongst the general public is at a, a, a serious de- uh, decrease. Gallup found that uh, public support for gun control is at a seven-year low. Uh, I think 52%, they say, support stricter gun laws now, um, which is you know pretty significant because just, what, three years ago uh, after Parkland, it was upwards of 67% of people were um, saying that they're in support of gun control. Um, and they found that the the largest driver of that decline was actually among independents this time. Typically, it's Republicans that will drive low numbers for uh, gun control support. But yeah, 15%. there's a big partisan, big partisan gap, right. of course. But the way that the independents move uh, sort of can often tell you how the broader public is moving on an issue. Right, right. Yeah, and they, their support cratered 15 points in this poll just from last year. So it's pretty significant. And then uh, earlier than that, there was a, a morning consult poll um, it was just a general issue poll, uh, polling registered voters on different political uh, issues going on right now. And they found that uh, majorities of or more uh, registered voters support Republicans than Democrats on the issue of gun policy, which, as we know, is a proxy basically for support of gun control. Um, just the way that parties, <clears throat> excuse me, are ideologically sorted on the issue. Um, and then another uh, poll we didn't get a chance to write up yet, but there will be a piece forthcoming. Uh, Quinnipiac came out with another poll that showed uh, the same trend that, you know, support for gun control is way down. Um, I think there's found actually that more people support less gun control than do support gun control, which is pretty significant. Um, yeah. First- yeah, it's, it's interesting to to see the numbers actually flip in that Quinnipiac poll. Uh, you know, right. And I, I wonder if Gallup might see the same thing next year when they do their poll again, uh, given the right. trend that's gone on. Uh, obviously, there's some <clears throat> you know, political considerations that happen with uh, really all issues at this point, given how polarized the, the country is. But right. with Democrats in complete control of Congress and the presidency at this point, uh, perhaps that's driving some of this. But I, I don't know if that's driving all of it, right? I mean, you, you actually did a, an analysis piece on this uh, for the members that looked at what some of the factors are in, in why these numbers are moving the way that they are. So can, can you give us a little bit of insight there too? Sure. Yeah. So as you said, obviously partisanship plays a big role in this. You tend to see numbers kind of flip flop depending on which party's in power. So there, there could be a little bit of a, a thermostatic response just to the fact that Democrats are in control. Um, that being said, I think there's clearly a number of other things going on. We're coming off you know, record-setting sales to first-time gun owners. Um, and we know from previous polling that people that own guns uh, vastly are vastly more likely to be opposed to gun control than people that don't own guns. And so if you're seeing millions of new people become gun owners, that's obviously going to drive maybe a little bit of a shift um, in people's attitudes toward future laws. And then obviously the big one is crime. Um, we're seeing record increases in crime um, across violent crime, particularly. 
uh, across the country right now. And in that same Gallup poll, they found that a record number of people are saying that they're buying guns to defend themselves from crime. It's up to 88% now, which is the highest they've ever recorded on that poll. So uh, it's clear that people want access to guns. They're, they're concerned about crime and, uh, they don't want to see any anything that's going to hinder their ability to protect themselves is, is sort of the takeaway I have. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair view of things, too. And you get a little bit more into the details of that as well in the piece where you, and you right. talk about, uh, you know, the experiences of some of these first time gun owners and how crime has played into their desire to, to buy guns and where maybe that is going here in the future. Uh, right. But, uh, people should. Again, buy a membership and you'll be able to read the full the full piece. But that's right. Um, I think it I think it's very interesting. And, and these polls, I mean, the movement in these polls is is pretty remarkable because uh, it's not just one poll. It's not an outlier uh, that you see this sort of effect happening in. And you've seen it also right. in President Biden's approval ratings, uh, not just generally, which have also you know, obviously they've they've trended downward significantly over the past you know month or two here, but. I mean, his approval on guns, the gun issue has been sliding almost since the very beginning of his presidency. Right. So you, you've seen this movement come across in all sorts of different polls on all sorts of different questions on the gun issue. And I think it's had a big impact as well on the ability of the president to actually pass the legislation that he's pursuing in regards to gun control. And so now he sure. has to focus much more on executive actions where he is owning the full consequence of whatever political um whatever political effect there is from doing these different actions like his his attempt to effectively outlaw millions of guns that have pistol braces attached to them or expand dramatically the ATF's ability to regulate what constitutes a firearm you know, how that plays out once it goes into effect is going to fall completely on him politically because he's the only it was a unilateral move. He's the only one responsible for it. So it'll be interesting to to watch that aspect of it. Of course, we also have another big story. We haven't we had a lot of news this week, actually. <laughs> there was there's quite week. a bit. You, you also had Heller uh, of the Supreme Court fame. He, yeah, right. he was the, the plaintiff in the famous Heller case which established uh there is in fact a individual right to keep and bear arms protected inside of the second amendment that was the result of his case he's back now um i mean he sued dc a number of times since that first case but his latest case he has again won although this time he won without actually getting a court order um, right which is fascinating development actually so DC, right. actually, can you give us a little bit of background. What did DC do uh, in this in this case? Sure. Yeah. So uh, last year, I believe they passed a, a city law. Um, it was one of these ghost gun prohibitions that are becoming you know pretty common throughout the country. Uh, but theirs was was fairly extreme just in the way it was written. It was broadly construed to essentially outlaw all manufacturing of firearms within the district. Yeah, even licensed um, manufacturing, right? Yeah, even licensed. Man there was no exception in the language of the law, um, which is obviously very broad. And their definition of ghost guns, um, basically, like Heller pointed this out in the suit, uh, could encompass things like Glocks or any other polymer frame pistol. It was they were their definition relied on whether or not something could be detected by a metal detector uh, with all of the, how the trigger group removed and the slide removed and the barrel removed. And obviously, right. you know, striker, striker fired, right. Striker fired polymer frame pistols. That's things like Glocks that are, you know, legal, even in States with ghost gun bans, which could DC, be covered issues by that definition. Own, DC issues, those guns to their own police department. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most common sidearm in the country, probably. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so they filed suit basically saying, you know, this is too broad. You know, this is, goes way further than any, you can't even manufacture your own guns for personal use. Um, and so the the D.C. City Council, at the behest of the attorney general, uh, entered in an amendment and actually voted and approved it basically to, to give a procedure for people to continue to self-manufacture firearms um, so long as they get it registered um, and it's not a prohibited firearm that they're creating. 
Uh, yeah, so yeah, they essentially backed down on the suit. Right. Effectively, the they gave Heller what he wanted. And they did that without being ordered to by a judge, which is very unusual right. in D.C. Usually right. they'll fight these things all the way to the Supreme Court in the past. And right. this time they didn't. So I think I might write an analysis piece for the the members newsletter on Sunday, just detailing this and what it means and and why it might have happened. Uh, what what DC may be thinking here? Why why they back down so so fast in this particular case? But it's another win for Heller. And then of course we have <clears throat> on top of that the NRA. <clears throat> There's been several developments on the when it comes to the NRA, and none of them have been good. Uh, first, we we had a, actually we did an excerpt from uh, Tim Mack's book. Uh, he just published. We had him on the podcast. Um, not that long ago, a week or two ago. And we published a, a portion um, from this book, from chapter 11 in there, specifically about InfoCision, which is a contractor the NRA uses to fundraise, uh, to bring in new membership. And we published the section that this discusses how the NRA will let InfoCision keep 100% of the over-the-phone credit transactions that it does whenever it brings in a new member or reactivates an old member, which essentially means that the NRA gets $0 from that transaction. So somebody who thinks they're paying dues to the NRA is actually just directly paying InfoCision 100% of their uh, transaction. So it's uh, something that I think maybe not a lot of people know uh, or realize about the fundraising tactics of the NRA. And, and in effect, they're paying this InfoCision company more money. Uh, at least they did between 20, 2008 and 2018. They pay, paid them more money to fundraise for them than they actually brought in in, in revenue. Right. So, you know, it's just another one of these sort of sweetheart deals that the group has had over the years that are now facing increasing scrutiny. Um, both internally and uh, from the New York Attorney General, who wants to shut down the group, of course. Uh, we've covered quite a lot of that as well. She certainly has her own uh, motives in, in the case, but these are the sorts of things that she's going after. Anyway, on top of that, unfortunately, uh, the NRA has also been victim of a Russian ransomware hack that's ongoing and getting worse. In fact, uh, we published a piece this week about how the thieves have have released a new batch of documents, internal NRA documents that unfortunately expose the personal information of many current and former NRA staff members. Uh, dozens of them, in fact, have had their social security numbers and bank account information now leaked in this attack on the NRA is apparently it seems to be a, a ransomware situation where this group of criminals is trying to extort the NRA by hacking into their computers and releasing sensitive information. Uh, unfortunately, the people that we spoke with who have been exposed in this attack have confirmed that the much of the information in there is authentic and also that they have not been contacted by the NRA about the the leaks at all to this point, which the NRA didn't respond to our questions about the leaks, so questions about what they're doing to help those who have been exposed or right. whether the leak is actually contained at this point. Because the interestingly, the hacker group had posted, they'd moved the NRA section on their dark web uh, website. They moved it from ongoing hack to completed hack. And it appeared that things were going to be over after the last round of leaks, which also included personal information from NRA staff members. And this is stuff from the like lowest level teenage hourly seasonal workers to the highest levels of NRA le uh, leadership. You know, obviously we, right. we've kept um we, we are not republishing the documents uh, especially ones that include personal information like that and we're not linking to where they're posted online but but these documents are freely available 
to anyone who can figure out how to get to the hackers' websites, which is frankly not that hard to do. They're also being collected into traditional file sharing services and shared around the internet. So it's thousands of people have seen this stuff already. And frankly, I just we just felt a responsibility to report that this is happening so that especially these NRA employees, the current and foreigner employees can pr try and protect themselves or hopefully the NRA right. will step in and do something. And it seems like that would be their responsibility in this case, but they haven't made any announcements or said anything public as publicly as to whether or not, or how they're going to do that. So we're still waiting on that. And then in addition, in addition to the personal information that's been released, there's also a lot of internal budget information, internal financial documents in the NRA that uh, things like their DNO policy for for board members, which has been a point of contention, a number of board members resigned over the lack of one last year. Um, things like uh, their cybersecurity guidelines were leaked as part of this. At least old ones, 2016 ones were leaked. The spokesman contracts, salary for employees. It's just. Uh, a ton of stuff. There's hundreds of documents. You also have their membership models that give details on how many people are actually members, the specific numbers, um, their budgets, their financial reports. A lot of this stuff is in there, and it's only getting worse, it appears, this this hack of the NRA. All right. So. Yeah, like, like you said, it would be, it'd be nice to at least uh, – either get a comment or a public statement just to let people know what they're doing to, to get a handle on this situation, uh, doing something to, pre to prevent this from happening in the future. Um, yeah, they, they haven't pretty... spoken since the first news of the hack back in October. And frankly, the media seems to have lost interest in this story for right. some reason. Yeah. Uh, everyone covered this when it first broke back in October, but the documents released then were not terribly interesting. Frankly, I mean, right. it seemed maybe as a proof of, you know, they were maybe just trying to show that they really did have access to internal documents when they leaked those ones. But the ones since then have been much worse for the NRA and especially for its staff. So uh, I don't know why there hasn't been much media follow-up to this beyond us. I mean, I you know, certainly I think the Reload is one of the only outlets that has the sourcing available inside of the NRA to confirm a lot of these documents to authenticate them. And so perhaps that's why there haven't been a lot of follow-ups from other groups, but uh, it's still concerning to me. I mean, I hope that those affected are, are aware. I mean, I've, we've tried to, uh, through our efforts to authenticate the documents, we've been in contact with a number of people who have been exposed and they did not, they did not know. Uh, so I don't know. I think it's a terrible situation, but hopefully, hopefully there won't be more people exposed in this. It's, it's going to be difficult. I think for a lot of those people to uh, deal with their personal information being hacked, you know, it's, it's extremely unfortunate situation, but uh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, we also, had, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's no resolution to that story, unfortunately, at this point. Hopefully there will be in the near future and people will be protected in some way. I think the NRA owes, owes them that much for sure. But the other piece of news that's dominated this week is the Rittenhouse trial. Right? The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot and killed two people uh, and injured a third during the Kenosha riots is on trial for his for those shootings and has claimed self-defense, of course. And there's been quite a lot of attention, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of hot takes around that yeah. case from both sides. Uh, you've seen it, right? <laughs> I've seen it. We've all seen it. And we, you know, obviously here at the Reload, we try to be sober and take a serious approach to whatever story we're covering. And so today we're going to have an actual lawyer on the show to discuss the actual law and how these things are actually playing out in his expert opinion as somebody who's practiced 
uh, and understands self-defense law in uh, Wisconsin, where this is taking place. So I think we're going to head over to that interview now, and hopefully we'll be able to make some sense out of this whole situation and try to get a feel for where it's headed. All right, I'm here with John Monroe. We just had the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict come in. Uh, so I wanted to bring someone on who's knowledgeable in the area of legal self-defense claims. Uh, and John is a lawyer who's dealt ex with these exact kinds of cases in the past. So, John, if you could explain for the audience just a little bit about yourself uh, for anyone who might not know who you are. Sure. Um, I've uh, been practicing law for about 28 years, um, licensed to practice in Wisconsin and in Georgia. I currently live in Georgia, um, but I still have quite a few cases in Wisconsin. In fact, I have a case at the Wisconsin Supreme Court next month. I'm going to be going up and arguing. Um, I concentrate my practice on uh, gun law litigation, um, both on the criminal and civil side. So this is the, the kind of thing that I work on. Right. And that's exactly why we wanted to have you on. Uh, obviously, this, we try to do things a little bit differently here at the Relub. We look for, uh, you know, more sober, serious analysis of events. We're not about hot takes. So I wanted to have somebody on who's had direct experience in exactly this kind of case. Uh, Rittenhouse has been charged. It was charged in Wisconsin, uh, and he pled that he had a self-defense claim in the case. He now has been ultimately successful. All of the charges against him, uh, he's been found not guilty. Uh, one of them was dismissed before going to the jury as well. That was a, a misdemeanor weapons charge. Uh, we can get into the details of all this, but... I just wanted to make sure we had someone on who actually knows what they're talking yeah. about. I know that's maybe a novel thing uh, in <laughs> a lot a lot of media outlets. So that's where we try to set ourselves apart a bit. So are you are you surprised at all by the ruling we just got? Uh, I can't say I'm surprised. Um, it it seemed at the outset like it was a, a decent self-defense case. But, you know, you see some video clips on the news and things like that. And you don't necessarily get the meat of things. So. There could have been more information that, you know, that wasn't uh, readily apparent. Uh, in fact, I think some video did come out at the trial that hadn't been shown before. Um, but from the outset, it looked like there was a decent self-defense claim. Yeah, that was my take on it as well from the beginning. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said about the circumstances that led up to these shootings and Rittenhouse being in Kenosha that night. And actually, we'll probably get into that a little bit more. I'm going to talk with David French about this next week. Uh, but I think when you look at the actual shootings themselves and the things he's actually directly charged with, it seemed fairly clear from the beginning, given all the video in the case that was publicly available right from the start, that he had a pretty good uh, chance of making a strong self-defense claim. And clearly the jury agreed with that. Um, now, what uh, I guess what in your mind, what are the key elements here to him successfully uh, putting on a self-defense claim in the in this case? What do you think it was that really uh, I mean, I guess what are, what are the in Wisconsin specifically? Right. Because there's slight variations from state to state. What are the key uh, pieces of information or the key? Uh, elements to a self-defense claim. Yeah, in that regard, Wisconsin's not so different from most other states, really. Um, in order to have a, a self-defense uh, claim, you have to reasonably believe that um, force is necessary to uh, prevent um, imminent death or great bodily harm. And um, you have to, the amount of force that you have to use to prevent um, that death or great bodily harm has to be reasonable. So there, there are two reasonableness requirements in there. You have to have a reasonable belief and you have to use a reasonable amount of force. Right. And I get, you know, that's, I guess, ultimately what this case comes down to is whether fear for your life was, whether Rittenhouse was really reasonably fearing for his life or serious bodily harm uh, and whether or not the force he used to prevent that or respond to those threats was reasonable. And I guess in both cases, the jury here said yes. Um, now, uh, another thing is they, they charged him with a couple of uh, my, lesser crimes in addition to the murder charges. And one thing I'm, I'm actually curious about is if they find he acted in self-defense for the larger 
charges, the more serious charges, does that just follow down naturally to the, the lesser charges or how does that work in this context? No, not really. Each of those, uh, the, you're talking about the five felony counts, I think, right? Not, not the two misdemeanor counts that the court dismissed early on. Um, yeah, yes. so e each of those uh, would be analyzed um, on its own um, because they all, the, each one of those had a different victim. Um, so you'd have to look at each, um, each of those alleged crimes on, uh, and, it, and it stands or falls on its own as far as self-defense is concerned. Uh, like, for example, uh, the first uh, shooting that night of Mr. Rosenbaum, um, you'd look at that to see whether uh, there was a reasonable belief there and then whether the amount of force used was reasonable. And then you'd move on down to the other charges. Um, the, the Rosenbaum shooting is probably the most important one in the case because the the theory of the prosecution was well these bystanders either saw um mr rittenhouse shoot mr rosenbaum or they heard about it so they were chasing him um under the theory that they were going to stop him because he was an active shooter uh so if the if the rosenbaum shooting was not justified then it would be reasonable for the bystanders to try to subdue the the active shooter if it was justified uh then based on the the video and the you know the testimony at the trial um then the bystanders were attacking him um and and it'd be hard to come to the conclusion at that point um that the shootings weren't justified um you know you had one guy hit him with a skateboard you had another guy point a gun at him um it, it'd be hard to come to a conclusion that using deadly force would not be reasonable in those circumstances if the first shooting uh, was justified. That's interesting. So because that first shooting, the jury determined that he was justified in using self-defense in that situation, using deadly force, uh, the later shootings are impacted by that as well, even though, I mean, I'm sure maybe perhaps some of these people who did attack him later on genuinely believe that he was fleeing this, you know, that he had done something terrible. Um, uh, that's interesting that it's still a lot of that hinges on whether that first act, that first shooting uh, was justified or not. Right. And, and so I think one of the, the key things here in, in the Rosenbaum incident, the, the first shooting is there's some suggestion, right. By the, the prosecution that, the force used was not only was he the not reasonably in fear for his life, uh, but the force used was too much because Rosenbaum was not armed. Right. And so uh, can you speak to that a little bit, how that works in the law as far as, you know, an armed assailant versus versus an unarmed assailant? Sure. Um, I mean, things might have been different if Mr. Rosenbaum had been armed, but the prosecution, I think, probably put too much stock in in whether or the fact that he was not armed um because you really have to look at at the facts of the you know that specifically applied in this instance and, and he wasn't armed but uh, even one of the other alleged victims uh, mr mcginnis um testified that mr rosenbaum lunged for and tried to grab the barrel um of uh, mr rittenhouse's rifle and, and it's you know i think it's widely understood in circles where people who are routinely armed, such as police, that if someone tries to take your gun, if they're successful, um, you're going to get shot with it, or at least someone's going to attempt to shoot you with it. So I think it's widely understood that if someone, uh, a non-friendly person, um, tries to take your gun, that if you don't use deadly force, they will. So the fact that he wasn't armed doesn't really matter when you consider what he was doing is trying to disarm Mr. Rittenhouse. See, that, that's interesting, too. I, uh, I'm, I'm definitely following you there. But that also obviously brings up another case um, in Georgia, where, where you are, uh, the other jurisdiction where you uh, try these sorts of cases. Uh, obviously, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, that case deals with uh, the, the Rosenbaum shooting and then the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery in the actual struggle before shots are fired. Uh, there's some similarities there in, in the the idea that you know, Aubrey was was grabbing at uh, the gun in that case as well. But I think a lot of people would imagine that those two cases are probably going to come out very differently in court. We don't have a, uh, a verdict in the Aubrey case yet, but uh, 
Uh, I think most people expect that that's a much harder self-defense claim to make. Can you talk a little bit about why, uh, one, if that's your view, and two, why there would be a significant difference because both of those shootings involve somebody grabbing the gun of of, of someone else right. before being shot? Yeah, I, I first of all, the, the, that is my view. I think there's likely to be a, a different result there. Um, it's not a foregone conclusion by any means, but um, I, I mean, the cases are really very factually different. In the Rittenhouse case, Mr. Rosenbaum was chasing Mr. Rittenhouse um, on foot, and Mr. Rittenhouse ended up being cornered more or less by physical objects, not by other people, um, so that he essentially ran into a corner, had to turn around, and um, and that's when Mr. Rosenbaum lunged at him and tried to take his gun. In the Arbery case, um, Mr. Arbery was the one being chased. Um, he was on foot. He's being chased by, and he was unarmed. He was being chased by people who were armed. Um, and he essentially got cornered by multiple people chasing him and, and then reached for, it's not on, on the video very well, but it appears that he reaches for or lunges for, for the shotgun of, of the first guy who was, who was at him. So there's there's more of a case there that Mr. Arbery was making a desperate attempt to defend himself because he was being attacked. And and in the Rittenhouse case, there's not really much of an argument that Mr. Rosenbaum was being attacked by Mr. Rittenhouse because Mr. Rittenhouse was running away from him. Right. Yeah, I think that that sums up pretty well the, the big difference between those two things, because obviously they both involve a struggle over a firearm. Um, but one, in one case, you have the person shooting who was being pursued and, and assailed by the person who got shot. And in the other case, you had the person who got shot was being pursued and assailed by the person with the gun. And I think that's, that's basically the key difference as to whether or not the shootings themselves are acts of self-defense. If you would have just transposed Mr. Rittenhouse and Mr. Rosenbaum and, and say, for instance, that Mr. Rittenhouse had been chasing Mr. Rosenbaum, Mr. Rosenbaum got cornered, and then he turned around and tried to grab the gun and and got shot. That would have been a very different case. Now, um, there is a discussion, of course, too, about uh, along the same lines with the Aubrey case about whether or not Rittenhouse was instigating these events just by being there in the first place. Um, can you t talk a little bit about that? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who don't agree with him going to Kenosha in the first place. Is there any sort of legal consideration with the fact that he was there uh, ostensibly trying to protect uh, businesses from from rioting, uh, you know, in his own in a sort of personal capacity? Does that play any role in the legal claims at hand? Not really. Um, and the reason for that is, it, it, as long as he was there lawfully in the first place, the his own motivations for being there and that kind of thing don't really matter. Um, there was nothing illegal about him being there. There was nothing illegal, um, the court has ruled now, about him having the rifle while he was there. Um, so he was... He was acting lawfully, whether or not he should have as a matter of, you know, public policy or morally or anything like that. That doesn't matter. He was there lawfully. Um, and and while he was there lawfully, he was attacked. Um, you could say the same thing about, you know, somebody going to a to a party and drinking a lot or something like that um, and and being out of control in that regard. Um it's legal to do that. And so if you're under those circumstances and you get attacked, you can still defend yourself. Um, so the fact that he was somewhere doing something that some people might think he shouldn't have been doing, uh, it wasn't illegal. So um, so he was entitled to be there if that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. And to that point about uh, him having the gun, right? He's 17 years old. Um, technically, he lives... One state over, this was sort of made, a, there's a lot of uh, hay made about the fact that he crossed states, state lines, right? Even though he, I believe he lives very close to Kenosha, even though it's technically across state lines. But 
<clears throat> a lot of people thought this was a very important point. And, you know, he's carrying a, um, a gun that he can't legally purchase himself. Um, and, and there people, he was obviously charged initially with a misdemeanor for possessing that gun. What are some of the legal implications there? I guess there's a number of things we could talk about. I think first, um, the dismissal of the charge that can you explain that statute a little bit? I get because it's certainly confusingly worded, which I think, if I understand correctly, played into why it was dismissed, why this charge was dismissed. But there's there's a prohibition against minors <clears throat> carrying guns in Wisconsin. But there's an exception about um, there's sort of an exception written into that statute about how it only applies to short-barreled rifles or potentially to somebody who doesn't have a hunting license, but it's sort of confusing. You understand the law there better than I do. So can you just talk a little bit about why that charge was dropped in your view and what that law is supposed to mean? So, I mean, that particular statute is, is not so unusual compared to other statutes um, when they get written and then changed over time. So you start off with a law that says it's a crime for someone under 18 to possess a firearm, period. And then later you say, oh, well, but it's okay. We, are, we actually allow minors to go hunting with long guns. So it could have been worded better probably, um, but basically then the, the wording that was put into the exception is um, that that the prohibition against possessing a firearm doesn't apply to, and, and they didn't call it long guns, but the description they used basically means long guns. So it would have been simpler just to say, it, it's against the law for a person under 18 to possess a handgun and then leave it at that. But that's not the way the statute was worded. It says it's against the law for someone under 18 to possess a firearm. And then you read on down farther and it says, but this doesn't apply to a minor possessing a long gun. It's really awkward to say it that way, but the bottom line is he never should have been charged with that. Um, it was, if you read the complete statute, it's pretty obvious. It doesn't apply to minors possessing long guns, period. So it shouldn't have been charged. It, I think multiple times motions were filed to dismiss it, um, and it was not dismissed until pretty late into the game, but, but that never really should have been a charge. Okay, so you don't, you don't take the view that it requires the minor to have a valid hunting license in Wisconsin for that to apply. No, it, it doesn't say that. And there's a, I mean, there are a couple of different doctrines that apply. Um, probably the most important is criminal statutes are construed strictly against the state and in favor of personal liberty. So if it's kind of awkwardly worded or there's some debate about, well, this only applies if you're hunting, if that's not the, what the statute says, the state loses. Uh, that's just the way criminal statutes are interpreted. So I, I think maybe the purpose of the exception is so that minors can go hunting with shotguns and rifles, but that's not the way it's worded. It just says it apply. It doesn't apply um, to carrying or to possessing long guns. So that's you don't have to go any farther than that. That's what it says. That's that. Yeah, the the state loses. Yeah, I mean that certainly seems to be how it came out in this case. Uh, it didn't even make it to the jury, right? It got dismissed. Right. But um, <clears throat> I think the prosecutor in this case made a number of, or the two prosecutors made a number of very uh, perhaps controversial claims during the case. Uh, for instance, there was a lot of talk uh, about the fact that Rittenhouse brought a gun to this event. And at, at some points, they, at one point, it was actually said directly that you forfeit the right to self-defense um, if you're bringing a gun to a place where you know there's going to be uh, violence. This is, can you talk about that a little bit, perhaps? Uh, I mean, I, I think that's an absurd argument. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, if you're just going into the woods for a walk by yourself, you might say, well, the chances of me encountering somebody are pretty slim, so I'm not bringing a gun. Um, but if you go to uh, an urban center where there's no uh, to be a lot of crime, you say, well, uh, that's a dangerous part of town, so I'm going to bring a gun. 
to say that you can't use self-defense because you purposefully bought a gun to a place where there might be violence, where are you going to bring a gun except to a place where there might be violence? I mean, that, that, that's kind of borderline frivolous. And then there was at a later point, uh, the other prosecutor made an argument that uh, Rittenhouse effectively, he brought a gun to a fist fight, I think was the quote, and that he should have, instead of shooting Rosenbaum or the others, he should have physically fought them with his, you know, with his fists. Yeah, they, I mean, the whole, the, the way self-defense works is um, you have to have the reasonable belief. And, um, and apparently that argument at least um, accepts the reasonable belief. Um, and it sounds like it's more of a, um, of a test of the second part of it is you have to use, the force that you use has to be reasonable. The fact that you might have been able to use less force, that's not the test. The test is whether the amount of force that you used was reasonable. Um, um, so it, maybe if he'd had a taser with him, Maybe that would have been just as effective um, and would have, you know, been enough. Uh, but that's not the test. Either the shooting was um, was justified or it wasn't, um, regardless of whether some smaller amount of force would have been OK. Right. Uh, it's not the standard isn't just the jury. I mean, I, although I'll be fair, a lot of this is kind of the jury second guessing what you do exactly yes. in, in a situation like this. So uh, I think that should is something that should become clear to people who carry guns, you know, like myself and others. This is what a self-defense trial looks like. You're going to be second guessed on everything you did. Yeah, I, I teach a lot of classes on on uh, the law of self-defense and people will ask me, well, what if this happens? Can I shoot the guy? And I'll say, maybe. I mean, I'm not the one who's going to decide, though. Twelve other people are. And I, that also gets back to the this difference between the Rittenhouse case and the Ahmad Arbery case in that uh, I think most people, even though you could point out some similarities, like the struggle over the gun um, with Rosenbaum and Rittenhouse and, and Arbery and, and his uh, assailant, most people, I think, reasonably can see a difference between those two situations because of how you, what you articulated earlier. And oftentimes that's what these things come down to and um i guess we should maybe cover the other three shootings here the other sorry other yeah there were three shootings i guess in the later part of the night after he was apparently running to try and get to the police after he shot rosenbaum rittenhouse was running down the street uh, that that's what he claims he was trying to get to the police and that's where he was um I guess, for a better word, attacked by the crowd who perhaps thought that he was, um, you know, had committed. Maybe they thought they were trying to detain him. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to obviously in a chaotic situation like that to judge everyone's motivations. But regardless, he was obviously attacked. He Now, he he falls down at this point. And then people start. One guy tries to kick him in the head. And I think. Uh, Rittenhouse takes a shot at, at him. I guess the, then there's the guy with the skateboard who does successfully hit him with, with the skateboard uh, after previously trying and failing uh, while he was running. And then he's shot and killed. I think he also grabs Rittenhouse's gun at that point. And then you had the, the third person who pointed a gun at him before he was shot in the arm, um, not killed. But he testified at the case too. Actually, that was kind of a big moment in the case was his testimony. The, the other guy who was armed where he effectively admitted that yes, Rittenhouse didn't actually shoot him until he pointed the gun at him. And this was a big, a fairly big revelation. It was treated as such, especially on the side of uh, people who were supportive of Rittenhouse's case. But to me, I thought that was another example of like something where it was on video the whole time. <laughs> it's just kind of confirming what was already on video. Uh, and I think, feel like that's true of a lot of this stuff that's, that came out during the trial. Well, um, the, the, the last shooting of Mr. Grosskreutz, the one who had the handgun, it, it looked in the video, I mean, you could see in the video that he had the handgun, but 
at least from the videos I saw, it was, it was not it was not obvious what he was doing with the handgun. Um, but he testified at the trial um, that Mr. Rittenhouse didn't shoot him until he pointed his gun at Mr. Rittenhouse, whether he did so intentionally or not. He he said he pointed the gun at Mr. Rittenhouse, and that's when Mr. Rittenhouse shot him. So I think that testimony uh, um, made a difference because the video, to me, it was it it seemed fairly clear that the shooting of Mr. Huber with the skateboard was uh, was probably justified. I mean, he, he's on the ground on his back and he's being hit by somebody with a skateboard. I mean, that's a pretty violent attack. It was less clear what was going on with Mr. Grosskreutz, the guy with the handgun, um, but then he himself testified at the trial that he pointed his gun at, at Mr. Rittenhouse, which I think, I mean, that, that justified the shooting then at that point. Yeah, I think he he had admitted to this when he was shown an image of himself pointing the gun at Rittenhouse before the shot was fired. I think it was a still image mm -hmm. that they used in court, but I, I had thought that that came from one of the videos, but I could be wrong on that front. Um, it seemed to me, watching his testimony, it was fairly clear that he was just sort of admitting to what was on the image he was being shown. But uh, but yeah, I think those points are are very relevant as far as those two shootings and why they would be justified. Uh, I think also what helped him helped his case a lot is the immediate what happened immediately before those two shootings before he shot pulled the trigger in those situations where he fell down. He somebody kicked him, tried to kick him in the head, and then he pointed his gun at two other people who stopped and put their hands up and backed away. And he did not shoot those people. And I think that that's another thing that kind of perhaps helped him in this case. Would you agree with that? Um, somewhat. Yeah. I, th I think the bottom line is in, in all three, I'm, I'm discounting the shooting that where he, it was an unknown victim and he didn't, he didn't get shot. Uh, so the three people that did get shot in each of those instances, Mr. Rittenhouse was either running away uh, had been cornered, um, was on his back, which I guess is the same as being cornered. Um, so, and all those, he, uh, you know, he was, he, he was being, uh, he was being attacked. And, um, and that's, um, you know, it's different from like, for example, what was going on in the, uh, in the Avery case. So I, I think, I think the fact patterns leading right up to the shootings are, are really important in, in, in for each of the shootings. Yeah, certainly. What uh, do you think this says, if anything, about um, self-defense law moving forward? Do, do, you, do you see any, this is a high profile case, but does it have any real impact beyond just th this actual trial? Um, you know, I, I, and I haven't heard if there's been much of a reaction right there in the community in, in Kenosha. Uh, I suppose there, you know, there probably will be some, but as far as going forward, if it's going to change uh, self-defense law, I don't really, I don't really picture that. Um, I think this was, even though it was sensational, got a lot of nationwide coverage and everything. I don't think it was an unusual case in terms of analyzing self-defense. I think it was fairly straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I have to agree with you there. I haven't written a whole lot about the case because because of that, really. Because it doesn't seem like something that was especially remarkable in in terms of the self defense claims being made, uh, given what's on, and a lot of it's on video, so it's like there's not a lot of back and forth as to what happened. Right. Um, you know, you have more of that in the Aubrey case because we only have the actual shooting on video, whereas everything before that um, is, you know, there's there's more perhaps nuance or, or unknown facts that go into that even. But, but yeah, it's, <clears throat> this does feel like a, a cut and dry self-defense case. I mean, obviously what led up to it is not normal, right? Uh, I don't know how, how, how many cases have you dealt with that stem from rioting? Yeah, that, that's, that part is rare. I mean, usually self-defense cases, um, there there was the shooter and there was um the the person who was shot or who, who who was killed maybe there was another 
eyewitness and maybe there was some video or something, but um, but they're generally pretty low key events that uh, erupt suddenly and are over uh, just as quickly. Uh, whereas this is something that had been going on for hours and hours and hours, uh, even overnight. So it's uh, the, that part's unusual. And I guess uh, we, we talked a little bit before about how whether or not it was a good idea for him to be in there in the first place doesn't really play into the actual self-defense claims in the case. Could you say the same thing about the rioting that had been going on, you know, across the country really beforehand? Does that play any role into Rittenhouse's potential fear for his life in this situation? You know, is that something you think <clears throat> that the jury considered when they were deliberating whether or not he had fear for his life, given, you know, at the time there had been a number of extremely violent riots around the country. Uh, you know, does that play any role or is that another thing that's just kind of ancillary? Well, it, it might be a little bit of each. I think it's it's mostly ancillary, but um, but it, it might help explain uh, why he was doing what he was doing leading up to it. I mean, he was walking down the the street in the middle of the night with a rifle on his back, you know, uh, on a sling. And he was carrying a medical pack and, you know, offering um, medical treatment to random people on the street. Those aren't typical behaviors. Um, none of them are illegal, obviously. Um, they're just not, they're not that typical. Um, so the fact that, mm -hmm. that there was rioting going on and, you know, people were setting uh, dumpsters on fire and cars on fire and porta potties and they were being tipped over and, I think cars and car lots were being vandalized. So I think that backdrop has some role in explaining why he was doing what he was doing and where he was doing it. But but by the same token, it's kind of ancillary because even if it had been in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, with no other events going on, and Mr. Rittenhouse had chosen to walk down the main street in Kenosha with a rifle slung on his back at two in the morning carrying a medical pack. Again, those aren't illegal behaviors. They're just not typical. Um, so if that's what he had chosen to do and the same events would have happened, I, I'm not sure there would have been a different result. What about, um, and this this kind of veers off from the facts of the case a little bit. So uh, I understand if you don't want to speculate here, but <clears throat> in this case, you had someone who went to Kenosha to defend the property of um friends or acquaintances or friends of friends, I guess it was. And <clears throat> I guess it, that doesn't, like we discussed earlier, perhaps that doesn't matter so much because of the actual details of how these self-defense shootings occurred because he was physically attacked and people were physically attacking him personally instead of property. You know, he, he wasn't shooting people over defensive property in this case. No one, you know, no one, no one argues that. Um, that 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 might be why he was there generally, but it, in the specific incidents, that's not why he started shooting at people. Um, but what if what if that had been the answer? Like, what what is the self defense law around, um, especially in Wisconsin? Because I think a lot of people perhaps have a too wide view of what the actual law is on defending your property. Because uh, uh, what perhaps what if he had been defending the car lot um, and shooting at people for trying to set fire to the cars? Would that would that be a much would he have any self-defense claim in, in that or not self-defense? But would he have any any viable defense if, if that had happened? Right. So in order to use deadly force in order to shoot at people, um, you, the first prong is. Uh, you have to reasonably believe um, that there's imminent death or great bodily harm to yourself or somebody else. If if you're up, I think they were up on the at the first car lot. They were up on the roof, basically, you know, just kind of looking out. Um, if you're up on the roof of the car lot and people are coming up and you know smashing the windows of the cars or setting them on fire or something like that, uh, you're up on the roof out of harm's way. You, you can't really reasonably believe. Uh, that there's imminent death or great bodily harm. There might be imminent uh, great uh, property destruction, but but that's not that's not good enough reason to employ deadly force. It's good enough reason to employ force other than deadly force, 
Uh, you certainly can, um, you know, can physically push people out of the car lot uh, or that kind of thing, but you can't uh, use deadly force to prevent something like that. Yeah, I guess in a riot, that's where it becomes kind of the line becomes blurred on that kind of stuff there, right? Because if you're in a building and someone is coming in to set fire to that building, like where, where's the line on what's self-defense and what's property defense? At that well, that's point? another matter. If you're in a building and, and somebody's setting the building on fire, I mean, that that might be a reason to justify um, deadly force. I mean, if you're if you're going to be cornered or trapped in the building and, and somebody's firebombing the building, um, that, you know, then you have reason to believe there's imminent death or great bodily harm. Um, but if you're up on the roof of, of the car lot office building and people are just um, vandalizing the cars out in the parking lot, um, I don't think you have reason to believe there's imminent death or great bodily harm. And then I guess on top of that, you also have the consideration of like, it's one thing if it's perhaps your property, right? But what if you're defending someone else's property? Then you know, does that, I don't. You know, I, I feel like as you get further away from someone physically directly attacking you, it gets harder and harder for you to justify using deadly force, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the general principle here. Um, I, I mean, that's somewhat true. But if you're only talking about deadly force, um, I mean, if you uh, reasonably believe there's death or great bodily harm to you or somebody else. Um, then you can use deadly force. Uh, but if you're only defending property without any reasonable belief of imminent death or great bodily harm to you or somebody else, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's your property or somebody else's property, uh, you're not privileged to use deadly force. Yeah, no, very good point. Um, I just obviously in, in a riot situation or a mob situation, the uh, lines start to get blurred as far as... Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, where, where, when it becomes a, a threat to your physical safety, when, when property destruction turns into threat to your physical safety. Um, but, uh, certainly I would imagine that you would caution most people to be very sure that they're under their own physical safety is being threatened before they employ deadly force in any situation. Right. Sure. I mean, if somebody's stealing your TV, it's just not worth it. You can buy another TV. Yeah, because there there are a few states out there that are exception to this. We saw this with the McCloskeys, where some states have uh, uh, broader protections for defending property. Uh, Texas, I believe, is another one. But uh, even in those states, I would, you know, you probably want to be extremely cautious about using deadly force in any situation. I mean, it's sort of common sense, obvious thing. Right. But... Yeah, there's some states that... Um, that extend the privilege to um, uh, to use deadly force to, for example, burglars, uh, regardless of what the burglar's doing. Um, and the theory is you don't have to wait to find out what they're doing um, when it might be too late. But um, but there, that's kind of a special case when you find somebody who's you know broken into your house in the middle of the night, as opposed to somebody who's um, you know just walking down the street having just taken your TV or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, the Castle Doctrine is. Uh... Is something that that a lot of states employ, but but uh, because yeah, the theory is you don't know why that person's broken into your right. house. But I think even in Missouri with the McCloskeys, their 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 protection, uh, their, their laws are are pretty expansive compared to what I thought they were, and compared to I think the rest of the country. But but even then, you know, you, you should avoid. The using or threatening deadly force at all, uh, at all, as as much as you possibly can, because as we saw in these this case, I mean, he, it took them uh, what three three four days to come back with the not guilty right. verdict. So it's it's not like it was a slam dunk thing here. You know, if you kill someone, you're gonna face very heavy scrutiny, regardless of the circumstances. Right. Well. Uh, and it's conventional wisdom is that if juries come back quickly, that it's a it's a conviction. It takes them longer to sift through the details to see if somebody was privileged uh, than it does to um, just decide somebody was guilty. Hmm, interesting. Um, all right. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your expert view on on this case and the details of it and the ins and outs and and why perhaps the jury went the way it did. 
Uh, so uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, perhaps we could have you on again in the future. Maybe we'll, we'll when the Ahmad Arbery case, when that jury comes in, perhaps we could have you back. All right. On. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. And that is it for this week's episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski, and I will see you guys next time. Make sure you stop over at thereload.com and buy a membership today to keep this thing going. Plus, you'll get access to all kinds of exclusive reports and analysis pieces. So it's a great value, I think. Um, and I think you'll think that too. So head over there, check it out, buy a membership. And if you're skeptical, join our free newsletter. See what we're all about. Anyway, I'll talk to you guys again next week.